Good morning. Good to see all of you who are here and glad you are here. Starting to feel a little bit more and more like normal every day and uh, we're glad to be back in the building with so many. Seems like we live in a time of nearly, at least in our nation, unprecedented division and increasing civil unrest. When you look around, when you watch the news, when you scroll images online, you see these discussions and these images and these videos of things like police brutality, of things like riots, protests. We see hostile social media interactions. And it seems like there's a whole segment of our society that feels unacknowledged and forsaken by those in charge. And many people are asking themselves, how can we change this? What do we need to do? What can we do? Is there anything we need to do? And the answers are usually the same and have been for decades. We need to vote for candidate X. We need new legislation. We need new policies. We need reform. We need to move some taxpayer dollars around. And while some of these things may be useful, I'm not a politician, I'm not a policymaker, and the pulpit's not a place for that kind of discussion, but there is a solution to be had. There is a solution, and there is a Christian answer to this question. The ultimate solution to the sin and the outrage that surrounds us will not be forged with human tools. Submit to you that the ultimate solution is found in Jesus Christ. Legal jargon on government letterhead can only do so much to change an untransformed heart. Real change, real progress comes from real transformation. And real transformation only comes from the gospel. So how can we fix our broken world? I don't have all the answers, but we're going to be looking this morning on how Jesus is the solution. And before we get there, I would submit three tasks we can do to help fix this world. The first is to look upward. Look to God. Look in his word. Pray to him. Ask for help. Look inward. What can I personally change? Now that I've gone to God's word and see what's expected of me, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to change in my own life? And then look outward. How can I help my fellow man in their time of need? How can I help them grow closer to God? If we look upward, look inward, and look outward, and God's on our side, there's a lot we can accomplish. But as we look in the Bible and see how Jesus is the ultimate solution, I invite you to think about what you can do personally as a child of God to help heal the racial divide, to help be a peacemaker, to help bring people closer to God. So let's see how Jesus is the solution. In the first place, Jesus is the solution because he breaks down the barriers that divide us. Turn in your Bibles, please. It might be in the same opening of the reading. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And notice what Paul says here to the Ephesians about Jesus and about his work and about his peace that he brings. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Ephesians 2, 11 through 19 obviously refers to the long-standing division between Jews and Gentiles. And when you look at that division, when you look at the background, you look at the history of these two groups of people, the division was more than just religious. It was cultural. It was ethnic. And both groups oftentimes would look down on the other. But through Jesus' death, Paul says, they were reconciled together in one body. Paul says Jesus Christ became their peace. The two groups became one. They became fellow citizens, Paul says. They became members together of God's household. And while this text obviously refers to Jews and Gentiles and the fulfillment of God's plan, what Paul says is the mystery of Christ to bring these two groups together through God's Son, it also teaches us some relevant things about our own time. And we see in this passage that Jesus really is our only hope for genuine reconciliation. And when we come to Jesus on his terms, we are united with a body of believers, no matter our race, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our culture. And even hostile groups, groups who have been warring for centuries, can be reconciled by the one who preached peace with God and therefore with each other. That's what we see in Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. Two groups who have been at each other's throats for who knows how long. One group oftentimes subduing the other. But Paul says, now Christ has preached peace. And in his body, the division, the hostility, it's torn away. And the result is co-heirs with God. The result is both members of the same family, God's household. And we see that the racial divisions that divide us, the cultural divisions that divide us, the ethnic divisions that may divide us, when we come to Jesus Christ and we see his message and we see what he's done, we know that we can dwell with brothers and sisters, no matter their background, in peace and unity. Not because we have it figured out, not because we're that strong, but because of what God has done for us through his son. Look also at Galatians 3, if you would. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. And notice what Paul has to say there likewise. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26. And he just finished discussing how the law was a guardian. The law was a schoolmaster. The law was a tutor leading us to Jesus Christ. But now that Christ has come and he died on the cross and he's resurrected, the law, the guardian, is no longer in effect. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And we see in this text that at baptism into Christ, the external things that often divide people, oftentimes even with hostility, these things, they are overcome with unity. Why? Because now these groups, they used to war with each other, they used to have this division, 
are together heirs according to the same promise. They're members now of the same family. But this doesn't mean that these divisions cease to exist. Right? If you're a female and you're baptized into Christ, you don't start becoming male. You don't start becoming gender neutral. These divisions still exist. If you were a slave in the first century and you were baptized into Christ, that doesn't automatically mean that you're free. If you're a Greek and you're baptized into Christ in the first century, you raise up out of the water and your name's still Theophilus. You're still Greek. You still have that ethnic heritage and that background. Paul's not saying that these things cease to exist and we just ignore them. Paul's saying that even in the midst of those differences, there's unity in Christ Jesus. Even with those differences, they no longer create the difference they used to. Those marks of division that used to exist, they no longer create hostility. And we don't have to ignore differences between people in the body of Christ, but we should recognize that because of the work of Christ, we can all be one. And we can have unity in diversity. We can have unity even while the world is as divided as ever. Why? Because despite our differences, we are united in Christ. And when we look around, even if the person looks nothing like us, even if we share almost nothing in common, I know that's my brother and my sister. And I love them, and I know they love me. And I know that God's brought us together. Such is why we cannot simultaneously hold our faith in Jesus and show personal favoritism or prejudice, James 2.1. The language there really is so powerful, James would say, you cannot do both. And some people have made a point that, well, James, what he's talking about is kind of just a preference type deal, maybe. But when you look at the context, James, the people in James's audience are mistreating some people because of what they're wearing and how they look. And they're saying, you can sit on the floor over there, you can stand in the back. We're going to get this nice looking guy up front. James says, you cannot do that. And it's not just in the church building, it's in our entire lives. We cannot simultaneously hold our faith while having prejudice in our heart. And there's a lot of passages we can go to, but we don't have the time. But I think one of the examples you see this, and the disciples of Jesus. And sometimes there's this, this, this roll call, right, of the, of the disciples of Jesus. And there's some people in there we don't really know a whole lot about, like Bartholomew and others. Which, by the way, I think is a great name, Bartholomew. I think we need to bring that back. Start naming kids Bartholomew. But in that list, there's Simon the Zealot. And there's some debate. Well, maybe he was just really zealous, maybe. But there was also this political movement of Jews who were referred by others and considered themselves zealots. And they were so opposed to the Roman rule of Jews that they were willing to, even by violent means throw off their Roman oppressors. And I like to believe that Simon was one of those guys, at least in his past life, Simon the Zealot. And you keep reading that roll call of disciples and you see Matthew the tax collector. And we're so used to taxes, we don't think anything of that. But Matthew the tax collector would have been hated by his fellow Jews. Here you have a Jewish man who, presumably, for the sake of a more comfortable life, is willing to turn his back on his Jewish brothers, submit to the yoke of Roman oppression, and then even turn around and force his Jewish brothers to pay Rome what they deserve. 
But when you see that Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot are on the same list, and they're brothers, and neither of them were murdered for the years we read about in the Bible, that they got along, that they put aside those differences, culturally, politically, etc., and they were able to love each other. How? Only one thing can explain that, and that's the power of Jesus Christ. And if Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector can get along, we can get along with people we don't agree with in Christ. We can get along with people from different backgrounds, from different races. We can do it. Because those get set aside. Because Jesus Christ is now our Lord. Jesus is a solution because he breaks down what divides us. Jesus is also the solution because he brings perfect justice. And there's a lot of talk about justice in our world. A lot of debate about justice. To what extent it should go. To what it really looks like. And we should care about justice. The Bible says a lot about justice. And if you look in the Old Testament especially and see what God has to say about how people are treated, it's an unavoidable fact that God cares about how people are treated. And we should do what we can to make it so that people get what they deserve and aren't unfairly treated. But at the end of the day, and for some this is a hard pill to swallow, but at the end of the day, as long as human systems are in place, there will be injustice. But God will one day right those wrongs. He will punish the deserving. He will exalt the humble. And he will humble the exalted. And at times when the world is outcrying injustice, and oftentimes rightfully so, we're reminded that while there may be some work to do here, God isn't ignoring what's going on. And there's a day coming where justice, perfect justice, without flaw or fail, will reign on us all. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. No other institution can enforce that the way God does. In 1 Peter 1.17, Peter describes God as he who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Notice that you're judged not for what others have done, but for what you have done. And you're judged by God impartially. And when you do a study on the justice of God, you see sometimes it's poured out hotly. But sometimes it combines with his mercy. Romans 3.26, God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And part of the thrust of Romans is God will continue to punish sin. That's a guarantee. And the things that are missed in this life will be punished in the next. But God also has provided a sacrifice. And because none of us can live that perfect life, we can look to Jesus Christ, obey him, and receive mercy. But even that's an outpouring of God's justice. If it wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But he did die, and he suffered as a sacrifice. So that God's justice doesn't have to be poured out on me. I can look to Jesus, and he can save me by his death. There's no injustice ignored in this life that will not be recompensed by God. We should do what we can to live in a just society, but we can't know true justice without knowing God. 
And what's missed by us will certainly be fixed by God. And sometimes, when society's at the end of its rope and it seems like there's no way up, we need to remember that God has said just vengeance is his, and he will repay. And sometimes all we can do, and it's a lot, is cling to him, trust him, and follow him. Jesus will bring perfect justice. That's a guarantee. Lastly, Jesus is a solution not only because he breaks down what divides us, not only because he will bring perfect justice, but Jesus is a solution because he shows us how to be the solution. I challenge you to read the Sermon on the Mount and to envision in your mind's eye what the world would be like if everybody tried their best to live according to those commands and principles. Think about Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Whatever you would that others would do to you, do also to them. Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets. If I follow that, suddenly how I treat people radically changes. No matter my vocation, no matter my walk of life, I'm not going to do, I will only do that to people that I would like for them to do to me. Jesus was challenged once by a lawyer, Master, tell us what's their greatest law. And if you look at the context, this is the third of three tests that the Pharisees and the lawyers sent to Jesus to try to entrap him while he was in Jerusalem. The first was, who do we pay taxes to? Do we really have to pay taxes? The second was, there's a woman who's been married seven times, she dies. In the resurrection, who's her husband? Jesus, of course, gives an excellent answer to both. The third is Jesus, Master. Tell us, you seem to be a man who fears God. What's the greatest law? And Jesus' response is to love God with everything you got, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you keep reading, this is my favorite part. It says that the lawyer went away astonished, and they no longer tried to challenge Jesus. He says, teacher, you're right. That is the law. And though he may have been biased, though he may have hated Jesus, he also had been studying the law for all of his life. And when Jesus said that, he had no choice but to say, yeah, Jesus, you're right. But when you really unpack that, and when Jesus says, this is what hangs all of God's revelation, to love God with everything you got, to love your neighbor as yourself, that really is an amazing thing. And it can be easy to fall into the trap of the man who asked him this in Luke's account. And to ask him, well then who's my neighbor? To try to find a way to wiggle out of what God has revealed and what God has said. And of course in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see that the neighbor, your neighbor is anybody really who needs help. Which one was a neighbor to him? Jesus asked the man and he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He just said the one who helped. You see, this command, when it really changes our life, when we really live it out, change will happen around us. One of the old tests for whether or not a thing is ethical, that you know, ethicists and philosophers have done this for centuries, you're to imagine what would happen to society if everybody in society lived out this principle. 
And I want you to do that with Matthew 7.12 and Matthew 22.37-40. What would the world look like if everybody loved God with all of their being and loved their neighbor as themselves? Imagine how the world would change if we all lived by these principles. If we all were doing our best to love God and to love our neighbor. I reckon things will change a lot. I reckon news would be totally different. I reckon your Facebook feed would be transformed. But here's the thing. It can't happen in the world if it hasn't happened in us. And that's why we need to look inward and read this and say, am I living this in my life? If I'm not, I can't expect those around me to follow suit. Imagine how the world would change if everybody read and lived the Beatitudes. Imagine the change that would happen if all of us together sought to be meek. That is, even when we have the strength to do something, we restrain ourselves. If we all sought to be meek, if we sought to be humble, if we all mourned over sin, if we were all hungry and thirsty for righteousness, if we were all merciful toward those who had sinned against us, if we were all pure in heart, if we all sought to be peacemakers and stand for God no matter the consequences, if we all lived out the Beatitudes, I promise you this world would change. Imagine how the world would change if we joined Jesus, the one with all authority on his mission, and we were serious about doing his work on earth until he returns by preaching the gospel and teaching others to observe all of Jesus' teachings. What if we lived out with as much fervor as we do anything? Matthew 28, 18-20, the Great Commission. And we looked and sought, and we tried to bring others to God. If you want to do your part to see lasting change in the world, preach the gospel and live it out in your life. And we will change, our community will change, and God willing, the world will as well. As we read in Ephesians in the reading, many in the world are walking around in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their own ignorance and because of the hardness of their hearts. When you look around in the world, you see a lot of that. What's the solution? Jesus said, go and teach. Go make disciples. Teach them to observe all things that I've taught you. People who are walking around in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, they need help. And Christians, the people with the message, the people with the gospel, are the only people who can really show them the way. What does the Lord require of us? We already read this, and Jesus summed it up pretty well. To love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But God broke it down like this to Israel through the prophet Micah. Israel said, what do we have to do, God, to get your favor? What do we have to sacrifice? Our own children? All the rams on the hill, all the oil we can muster, what is it going to take, God? And God said, I've already told you what I want. I want you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is really just an extrapolation of loving God with all of your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. And we cannot do justice while being unbothered by injustice. 
We cannot love kindness while spewing hate or harboring it in our heart. We cannot walk humbly with our God while thinking that our contrived solutions to the problem are better than his. Jesus is seated above all rule and authority, Ephesians 1.21, civil and otherwise. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And when we submit to his lordship, when we conform to his image, Romans 8.29, and when we become involved in his work, Matthew 28.18-20, the world will change. Be a part of the solution. That's my encouragement to all of us this morning, myself included. Be conformed to Jesus. The same Jesus who breaks down what divides us, brings perfect justice, and shows us how to be the solution. If while you look upward and inward, you see that there's some discrepancy between the word of God and your own life, today's the day to fix that. With tears of sincerity, mourning for sin, humbling yourself before God and turning back to him. Maybe you've let the things that Jesus has taken out of the way divide us once again. Maybe you harbor hate in your heart for a brother or for a sister. Maybe as you look outward, you see that really, like me, you haven't done enough. You haven't said enough. You haven't helped enough. You haven't let your light shine enough. Thank God he's merciful. And thank God we can do better starting now. If you have the need to come forward to respond to God's invitation, do it now while we sing this song.